0: A better way to do this let me show you a better way be hi folks this is Jack Spiko with another edition of the survival podcast it's always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 1st, 2014, this is episode 1379 of the Survival Podcast, it's a Tuesday, and that's means you should go out at Just Jack show, where I take a subject and teach you about it from my angle and my viewpoint, and one man's opinion, which is how this show has always been done since day one. I do have a little thing to prod you with though, and it's perfect for a show like today, and that is the ticking time clock of life, tick-tock, tick-tock, life moves on, you are on a sliding scale, you are moving toward either greater independence and liberty in your life, or you are moving toward greater tyranny in your life, those are the only two choices you have, there is no option C, there is no static in life, you're moving one direction or the other, inaction means you're going to be moving toward tyranny. And I think we have had such a great job of brainwashing done to us by the establishment as to what tyranny looks like, we no longer recognize it for what it is. When you don't get to decide if you spend time with your children this week, you are living in tyranny. When you don't get to decide how much of your income you provide to others to help them, and someone else does it for you, you are living in tyranny. When someone tells you how you will be allowed to live on your own property that you own, you are living in tyranny. And I could go down a list a mile long of things that have most of us living in tyranny today. When you can't afford to do very simple, basic things that you would like to do for your family because you are so buried in freaking debt that you have no money left at the end of every every pay period, you are living in tyranny. It might be self-imposed to a large degree, But it is tyranny. In fact, most tyrannies in this world today are self-imposed. And there's a lot of people, and as we talk about our history segments, you can think about what life was like a thousand years ago. There's a lot of people from the past that probably like to come forward to the present and kick our ass for squandering the greatest period of liberty that's existed in the world. Yes, that's now. Believe it or not, it is. Other than hunter-gatherer tribes, there's probably been no time where society as a whole has a greater opportunity to create their own liberty than today. With that, let's get into uh, the housekeeping before we get into the main topic of today's show. Housekeeping item one, is always, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious, awesome, kick-ass Chef Keith Snow. Hey, I'm going to talk to you today about how you can transition to a homestead lifestyle and make a living. Hey, Keith Snow's not doing what we're exactly going to talk about today, but it's an example. It's really an example. Chef Keith was a high-powered six-figure chef living in Colorado at some uppity-yuppie-ass ski resort. And one day said, I can't take these people anymore. Then he set up his own little homestead and he started doing his own thing. Teaching cooking, selling books, selling seasonings, building his own business. He did that, created Harvest Eating, and now he lives his life on his own terms. And you know what that means? That means you got quality product there because you don't succeed when you do that unless you're doing it right. Chef Keith will teach you to keep cook seasonally and locally. He has some of the best spice mixes I've ever had in my life. Amazing pasta sauce. The chicken, uh, the basil pesto, uh, basil pesto uh, uh, sauce is awesome. Absolutely freaking awesome. Cut that half with uh, chicken broth, and it is its own type of like tomato biscuit soup. It's awesome. He's got great stuff. Check him out today. He's even got a TSP special monster pack of spices. Next up today, Western Botanicals, herbs of a different type. Western Botanicals has a mission to create an herbalist in every home in America and empower you to do that for yourself. They do that by selling whole herbs, information on how to make preparations, and Whole herbal preparations that are already made for you. It's all on their website. They have an amazing selection. If it's herbal and legal, you'll find it at westernbotanicals.com. They're also a huge supporter of the show, members of the Support Brigade. You guys get a discount membership that would cost anybody else fifty bucks. You get it for free, and it gives you twenty five percent off everything they have there. Uh, For more details, see the benefits section of the members' support brigade if you're a member already. If you're not a member, before I tell you to join, I'm going to give you another reason to become a member. I just gave another reason today. Um, I have a new MSB vendor at the Survival Podcast called EcoSense. They do things like scented wax melts, fragrant soils, room and linen sprays, cool stuff like that. Um, I'll tell you for a lot of you guys, now don't get this wrong, I, I love when my house smells good. I think aromatherapy has immense physiological value, but I think it has an immense psychological value as well. Uh, there, There's probably no sense that can take a person back to a different time in their life than scent itself. Scent is probably the, the most powerful link to history uh, thing that there is in your own life. Whenever I'm out in the garden, if I hit a tomato plant with a water hose and I smell that tomato smell that comes off it, I'm 12 years old in the, the garden where my grandfather taught me a lot of the stuff I talk to you guys about every day. Um, and there's a power there. But, guys, you know, um, this new vendor does 25% off. And if you're spending 25 bucks or more, you get free shipping. That's a pretty good deal for MSB members. And they are a great site. They've been in business for 10 years. They're awesome. Again, they're called Ecosense. You can uh, learn more at MyEcosense.com if you want to look them up. And uh, we've got... Uh, blog post up today with links to all the stuff, and I decided to do something. It's 4th of July, so if you're sitting there going, man, I should join the MSB and get some of those eco or some of this other great stuff at a discount, uh, let me push you off the fence. Between now and July 7th, I'm going to run a, a, a sale, $35 for your first year of MSB. The discount code is 4July, the number 4, so 4July, so it's only uh, five characters, 4, J-U-L-Y, all lowercase. Use that at checkout. And you get your first year for 35 bucks. You want to join by mail? Just write it on the form. Get your first year for 35 bucks. And uh, if you want to pay with Bitcoin, email me. Uh, cause I have to go through a lot of crap to set up the Bitcoin payment thing and I don't, can't just stick a discount in there and it's going to charge you $50 worth of Bitcoin. So we'll just work it out. You can send me straight away and I'll set you up if you want to pay with Bitcoin on the, uh, on the renewals. If you want to renew and you're not, your membership's not expired yet. This is only available to people that are paying by mail, uh, or Bitcoin. Uh, if you pay by cash, checks, silver, anything in the mail, or Bitcoin, you can renew early. If you pay by PayPal, it's automatically renews, and it's just a disaster for me to try to work on letting you renew early. So sorry I can't do that for everyone. But uh, 15 bucks off, a year of MSB, brand new vendor, really cool stuff. And guys, I'll tell you what. Guys are always like, hey, what I get for the wife for like Valentine's Day or something like that? This this episode today is going to kind of be on lifestyle planning, right? That's the way that I look at this, lifestyle design. Um, and one of the things that makes your lifestyle happy is having a great relationship with that special person, in your wife, and doing things like off the cuff once in a while, not for any real reason. Women dig this stuff. They really do. And it's, it's because it's great stuff. So if you were to get something like that and even it's just because GIF, I'm telling you, You'll thank me for the dividends that you shall receive. Anyway, with that, let's do the history segment real quick. The year is 1379. Man, this one was hard. I've got Byzantium, Giving Up Brotherly Love, Tamerlane, A Man-to-Man Challenge, and Double Archdukes. Three great segments from Alex today. And in the end, I decided just to do the first one. Byzantium, Giving Up Brotherly Love. A few years ago, Sultan Mulad made a deal with Emperor John V of Constantinople to help him with his financial troubles. But while the emperor was working with the sultan, the sultan's son, Sanju, Sanju, Saoje, I don't know, and the emperor's son uh, the emperor's son, both led revolts to overturn their fathers. The sultan had his rebellious son blinded. And Emperor John imprisoned his son. Uh, Andronikos IV and crowned his younger son, Manuel II, as co-emperor. Andronikos escaped and had his father and brother locked in a tower for three years. They have now escaped, and, are appara- and apparently Manuel is a fast talker because he makes a deal with the sultan to take back Constantinople in exchange for an increasing tribute, cash, and the last eastern Roman city in Asia Minor, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The emperor enters Constantinople, Chasing his son Andronikos out. Okay, so this is a time in history that has repercussions that we're still dealing with. This whole component of the Balkan areas, the Middle East, the whole area around the Mediterranean, the massive amounts of ethnic splitting and schism and the massive amounts of religious splitting and schism and tension that led to multiple red world wars goes back to this time. Again, and this is, for those that are new to the episode, like, what is he talking about? It's 1379, so we do every day a couple minutes on just the year that is the episode. 1379, what was going on back then? But, again, those in power, stabbing each other in the back or the eye, literally here. And you also see that, in a place where tyrants have tyrannical control, the more vindictive have greater success. So the sultan has his son blinded, right? And and the, the westerner, right, the emperor, right, he's trying to be a little cooler, just has him thrown in jail. Well, he throws him in jail, he gets out, he causes all kinds of additional trouble. Where the sultan's son kind of didn't cause any problems anymore. And, again, this is always about when we look at history through our modern lens, understanding the times, and also understanding liberty and what liberty really is. And liberty is where each man must treat the other man as an equal. And all things decided on between each man must be negotiated. Well, these guys don't negotiate. They don't negotiate. And when they do negotiate, you notice what they do. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So you got a guy turns on his parents, turns on his dad, and when that falls apart, he runs to basically his father's enemy. Or actually tries to turn his father's somewhat, kind of, sort of, ally into his enemy. The other thing is, you have to understand right now, this is, you always hear about the collapse of the Roman Empire. This is kind of the last death throes. It, it's falling apart here. There's like, you know, here's what Alex says on that. The Eastern Roman Empire is uh, has been disintegrating for some time now, most, mostly due to cash flow problems and devaluing their currency. They have confiscated the Greek churches' monasteries for cash, and now they are vassals of the sultan. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But remember, that the Latin church is also in poor shape. Rome's in chaos because of the great schism. The church has more popes than they know what to do with. The Holy Roman Emperor is without real power beyond the lands he would have ruled as a king had he not been named emperor. Uh, The Eastern Roman Empire will hang on until Constantinople falls in 1453. So, you know, we're looking out 60, 70 years toward the complete total collapse uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire. And we're seeing all of this death and mayhem and fighting, is is largely due to the devaluation of these these the currency, and you just look at that and think, extended the empire beyond what makes sense. Devaluation of a currency, infighting, everybody in charge fighting with everybody else in charge to control more of less and less, and you look at our society today in America and. Gee, it almost sounds like the nightly news on Fox or CNN or something like that, doesn't it really? Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to much happier topics. Today's show is called The Profitable Small Acre Homestead. And, uh, you know, with all the stuff we've been doing with Permaethos, and we've got a hundred plus acre farm there, and, you know, we'll probably be going into at least one new farm next year, um, and it might be much larger, and, I've been looking more and more into what it takes to run things at a farm scale. I constantly remind myself that though I might have certain ambitions to to prove things can be done and to build success in the world of of, you know good quality naturally grown food. I mean that's really what it's all about. You leave the word permaculture out of it if you don't like the word. Um, And that prove that it can be done. And not only can it be done, but in the end it's better. I have to kind of always remind myself though that most people that listen to this show and and we 've had recently days as high as a hundred thousand downloads so now we we 've grown to i mean our audience today is the size of, of a very respectable city in this country today you know it 's not like a big giant city like Chicago or New York or Dallas or something, but a city of a hundred thousand is a significant metropolitan area and, and but most of those people will never most of you guys will never. Own a hundred or a thousand acres, and many of you don't want to, and I can understand why. I personally don't want to try to manage that much land. If I ever own personally, not through, you know, a company, but personally own like a hundred acres or a thousand acres, so it's going to be mostly hunting land. I might do a lot of earthworks and design stuff to it, but I can't see myself being a rancher or a farmer. Um, I love what I do here, I'm, and I think that part of what I'm going to try to convey today is that you can be a homesteader and be profitable on your homestead without necessarily doing agricultural-style production. It all—it always depends. And I know some of you, you know, get tired of the word permaculture. I don't really know why, and I think it's because you, maybe you don't know what it is. Permaculture is a design science, and if you if you look at the life of most Americans today, there's no design in it except there is, uh, and I'll explain. The problem is who designed it. They designed it. A very small group of people that actually control this company, this country, right? And I c- calling it a company is not exactly wrong. It's the, the country is run like a company today. And people say, well, if it was, then they'd have to be. Pr- no, no, no. If you gave a company the ability to print money and to steal money on demand from other people without doing anything for it. They would do it too. This is a big out-of-control company that doesn't have to obey the laws of the market because they are the market. But they have designed this system, and I I, I hate using us and them because it's, it's misunderstood mostly. Us and them in our society today is part of the great dichotomy, the great divide, Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, right? Rich and poor, middle class and lower class, and upper middle class versus affluent. And every way they can divide you, they'll divide you. So the true dichotomy right, rests under these two umbrellas they call Democrat and Republican. But then there's multiple schisms within each one over and over. And the more they can divide you, the more they control you. And the number of people that are really them is actually very, very small. You know, I'm saying it's probably less than 10,000 people that control 95% of what happens in a country of over 300 million people. Think about that. And I'm probably being generous going up to 10,000. I'm going that high so nobody accuses me of having foil wrapped around my head. So everybody focuses on, you know, X number of percent have, you know, X percent of the wealth. Wealth is hard to pin down, it can't just be done in dollars. There's people that have tremendous wealth but don't have a lot of money. And there's people that have a lot of money that don't have tremendous wealth. It's a combination for these people of both control and power and having what you want. In other words, if I gave you a job as a politician and paid like every real expense that you ever had, allowed you to legally inside trade based on knowledge you had that nobody else had, uh, to eventually make millions of dollars in investing just from that alone, uh, plus provided you know a huge expense account to you, but I only paid you a salary of a couple hundred thousand dollars you know you you 're not like rich like mark Cuban rich but you 're awful wealthy, and if you also get to make all kinds of decisions about how everybody else lives and you 're a power hungry psychopath because let 's be honest most of the people that do that job are, that's why they want that job, then that power is your wealth. And then when you have all kinds of people buying you off constantly, the the, the number of of dollars you have on paper pales in comparison to the wealth you have from power and control and ego. And it's those people that have designed this system. All the people mentioned there, the ones buying the votes and the ones selling the votes. And they designed the system to work basically – I didn't know I was going to talk about this part of this today. But as as I get into why you would live a life this way, you have to understand where you are and how undesigned your life is by yourself. So the design that was set up is that the average person would be born into a station in life, okay, rich or poor, rural or urban, whatever it was. And that person, unlike a caste system, could leave that station – And go from poor and rural like I did to, you know, at one time I would have said that we lived in a suburban upper middle class. So I moved from rural poor to suburban upper upper middle class. And it took a lot of hard work, but it really wasn't that complicated. Nobody said you can't do it because you're there. But most people will actually stay in their sphere. They won't migrate. They'll stay because they'll be programmed... All their lives by their parents and the educational system and the marketing around them that that's what you are. You should go to college, but you're a poor, poor, poor kid from the from the rural community. And if you get a college degree and stay there, there's not a lot of opportunity for you. So the only way that you can actually move out of that in their design is to leave the place that you call home. So either you're stuck with an expensive degree in a place where you can't really use it. Or you have to separate the extended family. That's part of the design. Most of you have probably never thought about it that way before. You will go to school. Okay. You'll be taught based on a formula designed by people that don't know you and don't care about you. Okay. The teachers you have will not set the formula for what you learn. Somebody else far away will. That will all be with an agenda to make you a good citizen, a good taxpayer, and a good worker of some kind. And they do consider you a worker even if you live off the government your entire life because you serve a purpose for them. You will fall into that role. You will buy a car and a house or rent an apartment or live in government housing. They don't care which one. You will be in debt or you will generate debt for others. And you will stay there until you die. You will spend your entire life working that way with the belief in a golden period called retirement when Social Security and Medicare will pay for everything. You will get there and find that it doesn't. Hopefully, you've saved enough money along the way, and most of you, by the time you're old enough to partake in that and actually live off of that, will have maybe 20 years of your life left, and 10 that are in really great quality, and it will be a lower and lower number every single year because your country is feeding you the shittiest food that anybody has ever eaten in the history of the world from a standpoint of how much toxin and gick and ick is in it. Yay, us. Us. Yay, us. Yay, we're number one. We're number one. That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. USA, USA, we eat GMO. I mean, come on. Wake the hell up. We're number one in absolutely nothing in the world anymore. We're number one in nothing. And we're we're still with a foam finger. We're number one. We're number one. Well, I don't have time for this. And I don't have time to climb into the sleazy, crappy, smelly, stinky ring that is politics to try to get my goon in charge to pull things back to my direction a little bit more. My solution was to find a way to extricate myself from the system and to start radically changing the world by example. And that might be why you want to do this. And your radical change by example might be an example to a couple hundred people around you instead of speaking into a microphone the way I do it. I mean, one of the most radical things a human being can do in this world is grow their own food. Because what it says to that establishment, it's it's one of the first steps that you say, no, sorry, not doing it. Well, you will eat the crap we put on the shelves, and if you want it to be better, you'll pay more for it, and we'll still destroy the planet growing it. We'll just call it organic. No, I won't. I'll grow my own. I'll find a guy down the road and I'll buy from him directly so he doesn't have to have his profit eroded by a multi-tiered distribution system. And they'll pass laws and try to be obstructive, but in the end, it's really hard to police everybody with a roadside stand selling apples, ain't it? So, my belief is that for America to be what we were promised it would be for us, we have to create it for ourselves. Because... The designers of of the current system have no interest in the American dream other than as a big dangling carrot in front of your head while you walk around like Igor the donkey, like a big dumb jackass doing whatever they want you to do. That's the nation you live in today. So what I'm hoping you'll get out of this show today as I talk about how to build a homestead into a profitable system is that even if you don't want to do anything I talk about, at all, ever, that the concept of designing your life so that you control it gets through to you so you'll design what you want for yourself. It's the same way I teach basic preparedness. I give 12 tenets of basic preparedness. And I say, now pick and choose from them and design your own life. Because I'm going to give you my plan. You're going to do it right up until you get, well, I don't want to do that. And then you won't do the rest because you'll think this is stupid. I don't want to do that. So there's a principle in permaculture that I want you to understand And then I want you to flip it over how it works in your life. In permaculture, if we have a space, and that that space can exist in conventional space, or it can exist over a period of time. Okay? If that space exists, you either have to work really hard to keep it as open space, and to keep anything from growing there. Or you have to put something into the space that you want And let it occupy both the space for now and over time as the system moves forward and the system changes, it has to adapt to that or you have to time stack in other elements into a design. And if you don't, nature will send something. If you put no vines up your trees, nature will send briars and wild may pops and other things to climb up your trees it's going to happen, something's going to go there, and you either have to extend a lot of effort and input with something like weed block to completely hold it down, and even eventually then, even if that weed block never fails, eventually the system will build up enough fertility on top of it, some will start growing on top of it. So the only real way to control it and get what you want out of it is to put what you want in there. This is your life, America. This is your life, America. Do I have your attention If you do not decide for yourself and plan for yourself how your life will go, society has already drawn up a template, and based on where you enter it, we already know where you'll end up. We can calculate within probably 5% accuracy based on where a person is born and where they go to school and what they've done by the age of 20, what they will look like in retirement and probably within very few uh, margins of error where they're probably even going to be living. Because society has already designed that for you. And what that means is if you don't take radical control of your decisions in your life, your road has been plowed, and they've put up guardrails all the way along it and signs to keep you moving forward. And every once in a while they'll put up a pretty billboard that tells you something pretty is ahead. And every once in a while they'll even let you look at something pretty and touch it for a while. But in the end, you will go down the road that's been designed for you, or you can design your own life. Make sense? So, one way that we could do this is to follow that homestead dream. Small acreage homestead dream. Three acres, five acres, maybe up to ten. Ten, you probably never even design it all. You probably never use it all, but it wouldn't hurt if it was there, right? And what I want to do with this, I want to tell you what Well, Dorothy and I have come up with a basic plan for right now and how we're seeing this play out. And I want to start off with admitting something. My plan may not be right for you, and it probably isn't. About the only way my plan is going to be right for you is if you are a person that can find a homestead where you can continuously commute to work, and you do this in a way where one spouse can do most of the work very slowly over time, or both of you have jobs where you can work from home and you have enough freedom and time to make it work or something like that because we're going slower toward a profitable stage than most people will be able to afford to. Most people are going to have to do things a little bit differently or a little bit quicker or grab onto one thing a little bit harder and develop more of a core. The other thing is, up until a couple months ago, this wasn't even part of my plan. I built Survival Podcast so that I could live this lifestyle and the lifestyle was never designed to support itself. It was designed to support us. So I'm trying to divide, design my land to feed us and to produce enough surplus that we can give some away. I mean, that was that was the basic concept of it. So the initial things we did here were the right things. But they weren't from a standpoint of let's make money. If it was let's make money, well, I have a great big flat space, and I probably would have put in a 100 raised beds, gone straight to doing a CSA in a market garden with automated watering, heavy mulches, highly improved soils. Straight, straight to that would have probably been one of the best ways that I could have generated significant cash in the first year from a property like I'm on. And there are people making seventy dollars to $150,000 farming an acre to two acres that way. And I, I, it sounds like, wow, an acre and not take that much money. An acre of raised beds is a shitload of production. The, these are people that are farming more along the way that most people garden. So now think about a one-acre garden. Now, all those beds have pathways between them. And they need to be big enough to get equipment in and out between them. Most of it's hand-pushed equipment and things like that. But you're going to lose at least two-tenths. So it's really eight-tenths of an acre of cultivation that's going on. And there's a lot of hand tools like weeding hose and seed and disc machines and stuff like that that when you're small, farming that small scale, you don't need a tractor. You use wheelbarrows and all this equipment. And you know most of it's designed to work on a 30-inch bed. So they put 30-inch beds in, and they do that, and and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the future, uh, later in the show, because that's a valid model, and it does work, and it is proven, and you can do a lot with it. It's a significant upfront cost to establish it, but there's enough data out there that it can be financed as a business if you go to the right sources for funding, or it can be staged in. So we can stage it in at a quarter of an acre, a quarter of an acre, a quarter of an acre, a quarter of an acre over time as we build a market. And even a quarter of an acre, market garden can put a pretty good ROI in, and the ROI is going to go up annually because the significant cost is going to be bringing in material and paying for material to, to do things like build raised beds, put down weed blocking and things like that. And we can do quite a bit with things like Oh, you know, cardboard, reclamated cardboard and things like that. But honestly, that stuff wears out in time. So really cheap plywood (laughs) might be a way to go in your paths and things like that. Anyway, I'll I'll leave that for now. I just want to point out that what I'm about to lay out for you may not be the perfect thing for you to do. And I don't know how much money it'll make us because it's more like a thing for Dorothy to do and have something of her own because she wants that. So what we're going to do... Is Our lead product is going to be eggs, and we know there's a heavy market for it because every single neighbor that we hand a carton of eggs for tries to pay for it, and we won't take their money right now because I can't guarantee them that I'm going to have eggs for them next week or the week after that because I have a small flock that we're currently expanding, but to give you an example of the fact that we know it's there, yesterday, the dogs go nuts. They sound like they want to kill somebody. And there's this stocky little Mexican guy with his car parked out at my gate, and he's walked through the walkthrough gate, and he's standing outside of my door. So, you know, I'm like, what's going on? And he seems a little taken aback by the dogs. But he looks harmless, so you know, I'm I'm armed, but he doesn't need to know that. And I answer the door and say, hey, can I help you? And he goes, "Uh, yeah, I see you have chickens. I'm like, yeah, we have chickens. He goes, do you sell eggs? And uh, I said, no, we don't sell eggs yet, but we will soon. So we had a guy stop by and ask about getting eggs. Just because he saw chickens here, so we know there's a market for that. We know we can make a little bit of money with that, but to tell you the truth, we're not looking to make a real heavy profit on eggs we, we have a much more sinister plan in our business plan with the eggs. Eggs are a highly marketable product; they are a product that you know more than half of all households eat eggs on a regular basis, so it's something that everybody uses um They're a product that people know you can get better. And they're a product that people like. They just like it. So when you're able to put up a little storefront on a piece of property and advertise fresh eggs, no GMO, no soy, happy pastured chickens, you're going to get a significant number of people who are going to at least stop and think, well, I'll buy a dozen and see how they are. So this is our, if we were doing online marketing, this is get our free report for entering your name and email, right? Stop by and buy a dozen eggs for five bucks. I know you could buy them for two ninety nine at the store or $1.99 at the store, but ours are better and there's the chicken that laid it right there. So we want to really build our customer base with our chickens. And then we want to sell other niche items. Dorothy's playing around with farming mealworms right now. Is it going to be a really great business for her? I don't know. She likes it. They're cool. It gives her something to do that she feels like it's hers and hers alone. She's already talking about expanding the larger breeding systems. It's not hard. And if all we do is supplement protein to our birds, it's worth doing. Because there's plans for the birds beyond just, you know, eggs. So... It's a great fat and protein supplement for our birds. She's just started taking up making candles. She wants to learn more about that. So what we'll probably do is put up a small tough shed. We can run basic power, just a single circuit to it. Uh, Nothing really heavy duty. So there's some lights. You can run a little tiny small air conditioner, insulate it real nice, and have a little storefront for her, walk through gate to it. And we'll keep most of the stuff that needs refrigeration and all actually in our garage in our big giant commercial refrigerator. And we'll have a little call box out there where people can call and she can bring, you know, what are you interested in today? And if it's not out there, she can bring it out to them and we'll have that little storefront. So we start stacking items into the customer base that the eggs create. Another thing we want to stack into that is plants, cuttings, seeds, things like that we can sell to customers. If you think about the person that sees a sign along the side of a road for fresh eggs, that stops and buys fresh eggs. A lot of them are going to be organic gardeners and homesteaders you know, on a small scale themselves. City people that can't have chickens or don't want the work of chickens and things like that, but they do other gardening type things. So this opens up things like fertilizer. So I'm I'm working on a video series on comfrey right now for you guys, and I just filmed the first part of it on making fertilizer from comfrey. So you brew up five gallons of comfrey fertilizer. You put it in a 16 ounce throwaway plastic water bottle, okay, and that mixes at, at you know if you're if you're being really heavy with it at like eight to one. So basically, one little water bottle makes a gallon, and most people actually will use it at like 16 to one. So that's two gallons. See, sell for a couple bucks, and what you do, and you start building this responsible, sustainable business. The way that we talked about with John Bush last week. So it's two dollars, but you do a ten cent deposit on the bottle. So it's two dollars and ten cents. You do a quarter deposit on the bottle. So as long as you bring a bottle back when you buy it, I'll give you a quarter off your next purchase. It's two bucks instead of two twenty five. And well, what if somebody comes in with a thousand bottles and wants two hundred fifty dollars? Tell them to leave. They're not my customer. It's not my bottle. Now, what if somebody just brings a bottle because they saw that and, they, fine, here, I'll just give you a quarter off. Of course I will. And I've got another bottle. The whole point is I actually want the product returned for as many uses as possible before it's disposed because it cuts my costs and my logistics. So we could do Comfrey. I'm, I'm working right now on building a compost tea brewer. Um, I don't see myself spending the money Evan asked for for a Vortex brewer, but he did send me over $400 worth of components to make compost tea and uh, I'm talking about Evan Folds from Progress Earth, and who knows, by the time I'm done with this, I might decide, get a Vortex Brewer, but I've built, out of a 30-gallon, you know, toughy garbage can, a compost brewer that seems to be working pretty well. I've already decided how I'll change it, but then we can brew compost tea, right? And and that dilutes out at like 16, 18 to 1, so we can sell that by the gallons of compost tea, comfrey fertilizer, and the nice thing about that is we can expose our customers to the concept and basically take orders in advance so we know what to produce. So you see how that starts to build this kind of momentum into a very basic, simple business. And, guys, I'm not going to say any more than this, but how much of this business do you think is going to be cash? I'll let you figure out the rest for yourself after I say that, okay? Um, so plants, cuttings, fertilizer... As uh, I've been asked a lot recently, what are you going to do with all this fruit? Well, some of it will sell. You know, I mean, so we also have this amazing amount of productivity that's going to come in. And at some point, we might actually sell poultry itself. I see us more along the lines of doing things like this. We have a bunch of egg chickens, and now that we're moving to Buff Orpingtons, there's actually a meat yield out of them that are going to graduate because they're being replaced. Wouldn't it be great if you had the customers that you've built this with come hang out on your homestead for an afternoon and throw like a barbecue style thing for them? Right? And make some apple cider or whatever. So eventually you actually cultivate this customer base into its own community that ends up Looking for ways to do business with you. Because they don't want you to go away. Because then the eggs that I don't even make that much money on will go away and I won't have those anymore. And what the, 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 what, here's what the pessimist is saying right now. Well, how many people can do that before there's so many people doing that there's not enough of a market left? A hell of a lot more than will in the next 20 years. That's the, I don't even care how many, I don't know what that number is and I don't care. If you're smart and you're selective and you build in stages. So that's our basic plan. And I'm not saying that like elements of the plan might not work for you. But that plan might be too slow. There might be not enough upfront revenue in that plan to work for a couple that says, you know what, we're going to go out, homestead, and make a go of it. So... Here's what I think you can learn from our plan and how you should build your design for your life. Number one, I think you should specialize in something that builds a customer base. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I wouldn't call eggs a loss leader, but they're not a huge profit center. They're a small profit item. It doesn't have to be a small profit item. It doesn't have to be a loss leader. There's people that are really good with woodworking. that can do custom woodworking and things like that. Um, there's all types of things that you can do that people will pay for if you simply market the fact that it's done. Uh metalwork, for instance. So I I I don't want to go into like a big list of stuff, but I want you to think about what are your skills and trades that you can do that that are things that people would pay for. Right? Some people can go into kind of a consulting gig. And it may not have anything to do with homesteading. If you're a person that's a really good fill in the blank, there's probably people who would pay you for your advice. And if you can downsize your life to a point where you can consult 20 hours a week and do most of it by phone, then that frees you up to build a secondary revenue stream, right? So, I mean, you have to get more creative. But when it comes to, like, even if you're doing that, I still think every farmstead, homestead, small homestead should have something that they specialize in, that they're really, really good at and they're known for. It could be education. It could be education. It could be education like full on permaculture education, workshops, and things like that. It could be a homeschool consortium. You know, it could be setting up a building with air conditioning and computers and internet access and a teacher who's fed up with corporate America saying, We run clinics each week. You can come Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Here's what we do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm marketing that to homeschoolers. And, and and don't just go do that. For God's sakes, do some market discovery before you invest in these things. Find out if the market's there. But that's there's no reason that can't be, that's not going to make you rich. Okay, it's not. But if you had 10 students to fill those three clinics, and they don't have to be the same 10, or it could be a third, total of 30, specializing in different subjects, and some come and some go and get replaced, but you just had 10, and you charge $10 a day, it's $300 a week, and it should be a very self-directed thing, but maybe a little bit of lecture, a little bit of explanation, a little bit of tutoring, and it could be more money than that. I don't know. It's whatever the market will bear. But that's just, I'm trying to get you to think beyond growing plants and trees and, and chickens, right? even though that's a great thing to do too. Um, I think you should expand slowly over time. Don't try to do it all at once. Because you'll never get really good at any of it if you try to do it all at once. There's things you can function stack like if you're going to do let's call it an orchard. I hate that word. I won't get into it today because I think that it's a short-sighted way to do things and it causes a lot of problems. I think of it as an orchard. But let's say you're going to do trees that produce food. Now getting the earth design and water design into the property and getting those planted right away is a great idea because it takes a long time for trees to produce and the longer you wait the longer it takes but that's not something you have to be doing on a daily basis once it's set up you got some irrigation establishment in and you're you let it go and you you tweak it along the way and you prune and you you do some maintenance and three years into it you're starting to get your first real production and that's something you do kind of you know at the same time consecutively not consecutively what's the word i'm looking for here Um, concurrently. Those words are important if you're being sentenced to something, Uh, (laughs) but concurrently. So there is some stuff you do concurrently, but when it comes to your market direction, you know, I think if you're going to be a market gardener and that's going to be your thing, you're going to do CSAs, you're going to provide big baskets full of food and everything, you should get that operation running, producing, stacked with customers, and making money. And then you can say, you know what? We'd have better pollination with bees. So let's start a bee operation in apiary and let's sell honey and wax. Okay, And you might concurrently put in two hives or three hives that are just there while you market garden. But then you're going to do just enough to make sure the hives are healthy and you know, your second year maybe do some dividing and expansion and more hives And you're probably not looking at selling a lot of honey until maybe your third year. So you're going to develop the one market and you're going to be developing the product for the next channel over time. And sometimes you'll move faster. Putting little items in there is great. And talking to local people that have local products about consignment deals maybe is not a bad idea if you're going to have a storefront. And then thinking of how I can stack things. So... One of the most thoughtful gifts I've received as the host of this show was the guy that emailed me. And I said, I had found this proverb, I don't remember who sent it to me, but it really hit home with me of everything I'm trying to do. It's an old Greek proverb, and it is, A society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they shall never sit. And the guy that sent me the, the gift has basically like an apple orchard, I don't remember it's like New York or Minnesota or somewhere up north and they have this old apple orchard that they've restored and they they make you know they do apples and apple cider and stuff like that I guess and um, but they function stack in things so they got a laser engraver and some woodworking equipment and every year they prune the trees well some of the prunings when you prune fruit trees end up being quite sizable so he took and took this piece of apple and cut so it sits like a little stand and it's got the bark on the back sanded it, finished it and engraved that saying on that piece of wood and sent that to me you can bet I'll die before I don't possess it anymore and I'll leave it to someone I care about hopefully my son Um, that type of thing really doesn't have a lot of cost associated with it and the raw materials being provided from an activity that you're creating anyway So I'm sure a lot of those branches are used as mulches and things like that, but these select pieces that make nice gifts are then converted into this. Now, I want you to think about this. That product sitting on a shelf at a store in town has a pretty low perceived value. It has to compete with Chinese crap and all, and some collateral marketing could be, you know, there's a picture of the farm and a little explanation of what it is, and that might generate some sales, but the reality is it only has a certain perceived value. Now, if I'm buying apple cider every year from this guy, um, or I'm buying apples every year for this guy, or I'm buying apple jelly, or if I'm buying some apple product that always ends up on my Thanksgiving table, All right, I want you to understand that the kind of customer relationship you're developing, so that when people come to my home and they eat these apple or apple product, um, I'm actually there's this guy that has this apple orchard right down the road, and that's where I get this, and it's fresh. People talk about stuff like that. When I can, for him or a member of his family or a good friend, create a product like that, tailor made to his Mindset. That product has a massive perceived value compared to when it's sitting on the shelf, even if it says the same thing and looks the same way. And if it can be customized, if I have a little machine where I can just type it in and then hit and it does it, well then it's got even bigger perceived value because it can be personalized to somebody. And a gift like that. We've gotten to a place in society where we're buying stuff for people for like Christmas and stuff like that and birthdays and all. It's hard because everybody already has everything because everybody already charges it on a credit card. And everything's all microwave age. And things like that are unique. And the story that goes with something like that is as important as the item itself. If you give somebody that, oh, that's nice, thank you. Oh, I got it from this guy and he's got it with the apples every year when you know, the wife makes pies for Thanksgiving. This is the the wood from the trees that those apples come from and the guy right down the road made it and his son is so-and-so and he lives over there and everything changes. And I'm not saying do that. I'm saying think that way. Function stack that way. This is the the, the core of small business that's been lost in an age of beeps and blips. And it's, it's not gone. People have just forgotten how to do it. And when you do it, It's well-received by people, I can tell you that. So what I'm talking about then is developing deep relationships with your customers, where the people you're doing business with, again, want to do business with you. They want to tell other people about what you're doing, and they never want you to go away. And this can be done in the automated world. You can do this with a podcast. I, I think I have. But you can do this without the big personality a lot of people don't have the big personality. They don't have the gift of gab, or they're not natural teachers, or they just don't want it. I mean, some people just don't want to be this public. I understand. But you can with, you know, I talk about on, on the Internet, a 1,000 true fans. If you have a 1,000 true fans, a 1,000 people that will spend one year's salary a year on you, you have three incomes. And build a thousand true fans model. Well, with this kind of model, honestly, a hundred true fans that keep coming back every week, okay, is enough. And it's kind of that you tell two people, they tell two people thing. If you do it that way, it, it, it can happen rather quickly. And as you develop those deep relationships, let your customers guide your development. If you're thinking, you know what I should do? I should get a bunch of ducks, and I should sell ducks. Well, why don't you ask all your customers that you've built over this ramp-up period, if I was selling ducks, would you want to buy a duck? And if everybody's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Do something that they would want to. But if you say, hey, I was thinking about, you know, we do chicken eggs, adding duck eggs. Would you be interested in duck eggs? There will be a little bit more, but they're awesome. And if you have people going, well, maybe, yeah. Well, then you add a small flock and you do a test market. And if people start going crazy over them, you, you expand. So don't build what you can't sell. Build the base market and then sell to it based on deep relationships Niche product and what they tell you they want, because you might say, "Well, I could do," and then I don't. Nobody wants a duck. Maybe just nobody wants them. Well, then don't do that again. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about what I'd look for in a property. If if this was the plan, I don't know if we'd be on this property or not. Um, probably would, because in the end, it, it has for everything it gives up, it has so much it gives back. But our biggest problem here, for those who have heard me talk about it before, is rock. And we have very shallow soils sitting on limestone slab. So I can't put ponds in. It makes water hard. It makes fencing hard. It makes every bit of infrastructure that would normally be the simple infrastructure hard. About the only thing that's easy to do here is a building. Because you only need to go so deep, put a slab on it, and it ain't going nowhere. It's literally welded to limestone. There's... You know the the one of the biggest businesses in the Dallas Fort Worth area is foundation repair. Those guys don't even p- pretend to care about where we're at because they know a house sitting here doesn't go nowhere. If it goes somewhere, it's a sinkhole in the limestone and it goes underground. That's about the only time one is going to move <laughs> around here. So that is a big thing for us, a limiter. But th- these are some things that I would want to have if I was going to try to build a homestead business that was going to have a customer base. Now, if you're going to move out on a homestead and you're going to consult and do all your homesteading for yourself and you're going to be a computer programmer remotely, this doesn't mean that much, especially the first one. But if you're going to build a local market, I want to be close to a reasonable population center. I do not want to be out in the middle of JABIP, especially with a small acreage. A big farm can have enough production that you can warrant trucking stuff. Okay, because if a truckload of stuff leaves and delivers, or goes to market, or goes to a reseller, or goes to a farmer's market, and comes back empty, it's profitable, right? But the homesteaders producing more like a trunk load of stuff, you know, the back of a of a station wagon load of stuff, maybe, and that really you don't want to spend a lot of time at farmers markets and you don't want to spend a lot of time transporting stuff you want the customer to come to you and if you build a local market the right way the customer actually isn't at any transportation miles your best customers are going to be people that you know on a regular basis just happen to drive by your location so you know a reasonable population center With with a market, right? If there's a small town near you, and every single person that lives there has a garden and homesteads and raises chickens and cows, you probably don't have a big, big market to sell to there. And you have a lot of competition. If everybody's dead-ass broke, if it's like one of the poorest towns in America... I'm conflicted because I'd love to see somebody go there and start building enterprises and businesses and turn that around. I think there's opportunity there, but if you're going to do it as a homesteader selling to the market, the demographics wrong. So you want a reasonably affluent market to sell to. If there's if there's no two hundred and fifty plus thousand dollar houses within twenty miles of where you're at, you've got a problem. Okay, I mean you do it, it from this type of a direct marketing thing. You're either going to have to go bigger land, bigger production, or, or do something radically different. Um, decent Internet access. This was one of our biggest holdups. We found a lot of property that property-wise was better, but there wasn't quality Internet access. Several of them, though, would have had plenty good Internet access for the average homesteader doing what I'm talking about. They're not uploading a two-hour audio show every day, and multiple videos every week, and all of, the, and, and running a full-scale online customer service-driven business, right? Um, so even satellite internet will work for many people like that. But I want anybody doing this to have a blog. So it's set up like a basic website, so you've got your blog portion of it, but you've got you know, your four or five conventional pages about us, what we do, products, where you can meet us, hours of operation, and lots of pictures of stuff and things like that because it will enable you over time to develop different marketing schemes and business models, educational tours and things like that. And it also lets the person that's blathering on, Because if you do this right, you're selling to Edna, and Edna is like, "This is so great!" You got right, and their 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 sister-in-law, or their sister, or their brother, or their friend is like, "Shut up already about this!" But but if you can show it to them, if you let me show you their website, right? You know, and and they can see the pictures. Oh, that's how all this happens. It's it's one of the best marketing tools that there is, even locally. So definitely having internet access that's good enough for basic blogging and uploading basic videos and things like that. You might say, well, I don't want to do any videos, I don't want to be on camera. Do what I do when I'm when I don't have anybody to help me and I'm trying to do it quick. Pick your iPhone up, point it at something, stand behind the camera and tell people what it is, and upload it to YouTube. 30 60 seconds. Right. These are our chickens, they just had some new babies. Uh we'll be great raising these guys up and uh they'll be part of our laying flock by this summer. Uh, so come by and get some really fresh eggs and upload. See, it doesn't have to be fancy. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't look like something a big company does because you don't want to look like that because you're you are directly competing against it, All right? So that's that's another thing I would look for: decent, inner, good drive-by traffic. Everybody in the survival community wants to be you know down twenty miles down a windy dirt road, and then what you're going to have is this little sign out there that says "fresh eggs" with an arrow. And you know, people start hearing banjo music when they're driving down a radio a road. It, it doesn't really help. Doesn't really help. But if you have significant drive-by traffic and you have a nice little storefront set up and signage and things like that, and it's a welcoming environment, well, I'm going to stop just to see what this is, right? And 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 that is really important how that is presented. Very quaint, very country, very very different than what's around you. Is how I'd want to do that. Um, but I want good drive by traffic. We, we haven't had have that. No restrictions. Unincorporated land if possible. So now you're trying to get close, but far. We hit a home run on that one. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things to me about this property. I don't have to ask anybody for permission to do shit. And, and that's really what you want. And it may be hard. So if there are restrictions, you need to be very clear on what they are and decide, does your business plan fall outside of those restrictions? And how how impeded by those restrictions are you, and what's the balance point? Because there's people doing urban farms in downtown Austin. There's all kinds of restrictions, but Austin's friendly to urban farming. They're not friendly to urban livestock, but they are friendly to urban market garden-style farming. And if that's really what you want to spend most of your effort on doing, a town like that makes sense. A town with a bunch of yuppies that want to pay a premium for natural food, you're growing natural food. That's a home run. Now, I don't want to do that, but you might. And there's nothing wrong with it, and somebody needs to do it. And it builds the market for everybody, by the way, when they do. The one we don't have is deep soils and pond sites. The more water you can put on a property, the more pressure you take off of infrastructure, the more easy your life becomes. If you can put four little ponds in and paddock fence around four little ponds, and move animals through those four areas, the ponds give them water. You don't have to do jack squat, and we spend an awful lot of time filling kiddie pools and, and, and cleaning water out and stuff like that. So if you can put natural water in, it goes a long way. So you need deeper soils to do that. Deeper soils let you do things like run subsoilers through your soil, build soil much faster, improve soil health much faster. It doesn't have to be good quality soil so much. It has to be, can you dig it? Right? Can you dig in it? Can you plow in it? Can you manipulate it? Can you cultivate it? If you can do that, you know, between keyline and swales and things like that, you can transform any property. Especially, you know, a three to five acre property. It's not that big. It's not that expensive to do. Um, flat to relatively flat, especially smaller properties. There are so many challenges we have at, at Elijah Springs because it's 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 mountainous land. It's it's steep hills that would not be there and you know the fencing to do our paddock shift livestock is going to cost a significant amount of money and it's it's much more expensive because of the design that we have to put in now it's going to be spectacular when it's done and we'll be able to produce some of the most amazing pork that that you could buy anywhere in the world but it's a significant upfront cost and if it was a five-acre property with that kind of steep land like I had in Arkansas, it really hurts. It really hurts the ability to do a lot of things. So flat is cheap to earth's, to do earthworks on. It's cheap generally to fence. It's as cheap as it gets to fence. Let's put it that way. And if you got deep soils, you can put ponds in, you can pound fence posts in. A lot of things that are complex become a lot more easy. They're not cheap, but they're cheap comparatively you got rocky soils and steep, and you're trying to put water in and fencing in and other infrastructure in. It's comparatively expensive. So I want flat to relatively flat. Some elevation change is great because it lets me move water for free. That's always good. But, you know, significant steep elevation is is generally a problem. So we've got the flat part really, really good here. Uh, And it always comes down to three things. The three big things on any property, water, access, structures. That's that's really what you have to look at. So where is water on the property or where can it be put in? And how much is it going to cost to do it? What is the access on the property? So it's great that the property's big, but can you get to it, right? So a five-acre property, you can do a lot with a wheelbarrow lawn, but you're probably going to want a little tractor, a little lawn tractor with a cart or a four-wheeler or something for moving heavier things around or just a pickup truck. Well, you know, can you go there without damaging the land? Do you need to put a road in? How often do you need to go there? So, you know, a lot of times the reason you wouldn't use a pickup is a vehicle like a four-wheeler or something, especially a smaller one, is much easier on the land. Or a little lawn tractor like we have in a cart is much easier on the land than a big, you know, two-and-a-half-ton rated pickup truck like I have. So you got to think about that, too. Uh, it's the water, the access, and the structure. What buildings are there? Can I reuse them? Can I you know, per- repurpose them? And if I don't have structure, where can it go? How much effort does it take, and what's my budget to put it in? And, and those things all together are how I would evaluate a property for this. I want to talk about some different revenue streams that uh, some I may do and some I may never do, but I just want to give you some ideas And there's going to be like tons of people going, well, what about rabbits? I don't have rabbits on my list. Or what about quail? And I don't have quail on my list. Yes, 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 and yes, and yes. But does your market want it? Can it make you money? And how much work do you have to do? Let's say I had two possible revenue streams, A and B. And let's say I like both of them. I love A, I like B. Okay, so I love A, I like B. When I test to see whether or not my market's interested in it, they like A, and they love B. I'm starting to love B. All right. Now, when I say to myself, how many hours a week will I have to spend doing this? I love the idea of A, but I'm going to spend 10 hours a week doing it. I like the idea of B, but I'm going to spend 2 hours a week doing it, and my market loves B. I'm loving B. I'm loving B. Now, when I say to myself, which one makes me more money, and I say they both make me the same money, I am over my head, over heels, loving B now. Because they make the same money. Why are you so much? Because I work less, my market loves it, and I and, and, and it's going to cost me the same in budget. That just means it costs me a lot less, because I know I'm going to sell more, but I'm going to put less labor in. So now I'm, now I'm, I'm having a love affair with B. And But you really wanted to do A. Yeah, but now I really want to do B because it's going to make me money. I don't hate the idea of it. It costs me the same, and my market's begging for it. And if I look at ongoing costs, and the ongoing costs of B are level or go down, and the ongoing costs of A are level and or go up, now I'm not even looking at A for a long time. B and I are running off to a lope in Las Vegas. That's how in love with B I've just become. And I could have started out going, eh, I don't know how I feel about B, and I would have ended up in the same place with it. So as you think about all these things, just because you heard about it, just because somebody says it, it really comes down to how marketable is it, how much does it cost, what's your profit margin, and how much, how much does your market pull versus you have to push. So... I think one of the best things that you can do in this market, again, though, does involve poultry, and I am really moving toward a paddock shift, CIVO pasture poultry model. I don't know if we'll do meat, but you certainly could. There's a lot of other things that get in the way when you do meat, so there's a lot of other things that could make it easy or hard. It depends. But we have a one-acre western pasture. It's not really suitable to major earthworks. It's some of our shallowest soils. The best thing that I can do with it now is continue to have my neighbor dump horse shit on it and graze chickens on it. The problem is they're free ranging over an acre and they're not really working where I need them when I need them. And it's not giving me the opportunity to do things like going in. Let's say, okay, let's just take this piece that we can afford right now and let's go get 10 loads of compost and let's layer it with a freaking four inch deep compost layer and let's plant it to cowpea and buckwheat and let's irrigate this damn thing and let's get something going here and then let's bring the birds through and do it on another piece and let's let the other piece go natural and native and keep it going so we're probably going to spend the money on the fencing and it's going to cost us more than it would probably cost you because you probably wouldn't buy a piece of land with this much rock in the subsoil if you knew you were going to do this and if you did it on purpose after you knew you were going to do this you would be making a bad business decision follow? Okay. But we'll probably do it because now we're working with what we have and there's nothing wrong with that. And we also see how it plays in in function stacks and design, back to permaculture, with all the other things we want to do. Right? So what it enables us to do is go in and put the storefront up and right next to the front paddock but yet preclude the chickens from getting there. We have this big turnaround area before the gate opens that's plenty of parking for two or three customers. That's all we ever expect to have at one time for just day-to-day business. And then we put a walk-through gate to the little storefront that we'll put in, and that allows the person to walk right next to the chickens but never let them out in the road to be run over or eaten by the neighbor's dog. So it, it plays into that. It also plays into then we can go in and plant a lot of really hardy trees out there from seed and from seedlings. Uh, I'm I'm becoming a big fan of this Irapan product. It's made by Tal Yaw, T-A-L hyphen Y-A, and the product is marketed in the United States as Irapan. I believe they'll work. I'll have to come up with a different way to keep them on the ground because I don't even think I can get the staples in the ground deep enough out there, but the trees will fracture the limestone with with root pressure if you put the right trees out there. Planting trees, getting them up, putting some berms in, and with the permanent fencing, All we have to do with those drip trays, wherever there's a tree, you put a drip tray, and you take a little um, piece of chicken wire, just big enough, and put it over the tree. And that's it. And the the chickens can't scratch the roots up because of the drip tray, and they can't browse off the tree because there's a little wrap of of wire around it. So we can go out and put a couple hundred trees out there. And out of 200, 100 will die. It's okay. We're supposed to. We'll have survivors. And and over the years, they'll build shade, and they'll build mast, and they'll feed the chickens. And if that was deep soil, this would all be easier. But I've actually come up with a design that will let me keep them in the coop, keep the coop run area I have as a sacrifice area, and allow the chickens to access any one of the five paddocks of my choosing without accessing any of the other four. And it's pretty cool, and I'll have to do a walkthrough with the camera for you to show you how I figured out how to do it. But basically what it it involves is doing basically five as close as we can, as even paddocks as we can, and then using their run area that was already put in and putting two small chicken gates, one that goes to paddock one, one that goes to paddock two. Paddock three is basically open the front door instead of the back door of the chicken coop with a small excluder fence to keep them out of paddock three. And then there's the goose area the goose fence area that was a small goat pen and we can put in two little gates in that and one gate opens to four, and the last gate opens to five and just by choosing which gates we allow open we can choose where they go um i would have put the coop in a totally different location and come up with a different design schematic for it that would have been easier but it's already there and it's a big beautiful coop and there's no reason to move it so i worked with what i had so The, 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 the paddock shift, civil pasture model for poultry. And I think that can work for other livestock, like hogs and things like that. And, you know, we, going into the future, we might raise a couple pigs every year. One or two. Probably not as a, as a product, but for our own use. But that's part of the whole business mindset as well. If I raise two pigs a year, that's a lot of pork that I don't have to buy. And if I can get the system first to a point where it, it provides a lot of the support and I reduce my feed costs, I don't have to buy the feed either. Now, all of the money that I would have spent to buy pork chops I'm not spending, I'm using my own animals. So there's ways to, to, to look at this other than just direct sales model. Now, I don't want my pigs with my chickens because, frankly, they'll eat my chickens. So I do a leader-follower system. The pigs are in one paddock and the chickens are a paddock ahead of them, or paddock and a half ahead of them, really. Um, so... That's something that can be done on a lot of different ways. And if you live in a place where you have normal soils, mobile coops and electro netting is easier and cheaper and more flexible, infinitely flexible. But there is also the workload. So if I have two or three mobile coops with electro net, and I set up as best I can, so I move the coop. When I move the coop, the electro net wraps up and Stacks on the coop so I can just push it or drag it wherever it needs to go and then stop it and set it back up. And I have to do all that. Where on a small small operation, and if you take an acre on a three-acre property like we have or an acre and a half on a five-acre property and break it into these permanently fenced paddocks, if you're running your animals a week on each paddock, all you do is open a door for that week. And... Then you open your chicken coop door in the morning, and you close it at night. And if you really want to get fancy, you can put in automatic doors, on timers, and and the timers can actually open the right doors for you. You can go as automated as you want to. I don't want to be that automated. I like checking on my animals, seeing my animals, being involved with my animals, knowing when something's wrong, doing the closest thing I can to a head count while they all run around to make sure I'm not missing anybody. But you can design a lot of automation into this. You can certainly design a lot of ease into this. And that fencing is a one-time cost, and if you put good fencing in it, lasts 25 years or more. And the trees last longer than you if you do those right. So that's something to look at is the the pasture poultry model. So we're also doing trees, so there's another yield there, and that yield can be for the animals, for produce, or for both. Uh, I think market gardening is probably the fastest opportunity because it's going to focus on annuals it is food everybody's already familiar with and eats if it's designed properly you can do a lot with hand tools again like hand weeders and rotary hose and and discs and uh, the the roll disc seeders and stuff like that and there's a lot of equipment that again is made to work on standard size raised beds Uh, people understand it it's easy to build a csa around and a CSA, for those that aren't familiar with it, is called Community Supported Agriculture. And that's basically where you say, for X dollars a year, these are the months we're in production, and you get one share for one price of everything that we produce. So if if this week we have um, 200 squash and we've sold 100 memberships, every member is going to get two squash this week. Next week you're not going to get squash, or maybe you are again, I don't know. You know, and you know, next week you're going to get a bundle of carrots and a bundle of kale and it's whatever we have. And that is a risk-share model where the community actually understands that if the farmers go broke or if the farmers get bad weather and bad crops and have a low year, they go broke and they're gone. And the farmer has to buy the seed and the material and spend all the money. And the community is saying, we'll risk-share with you. We realize that this year... We might not get as much as we had planned, but next year if you have a bumper crop, we might get a lot more than we would have expected. And then we know that over the years this stuff works itself out, and as long as you're working hard and doing a good job for people, they tend to stick around. Or you can do just a basic market sales where you, know, you come in and pick what you want and buy what you want. And most people that do CSAs do both. They, you know, This is what we have available, but let me tell you about our CSA. This is what our CSA people are coming to pick up today. Here it is. This is a basket for CSA. And all of this costs them X dollars a year because that's guaranteed repeat business. And now I can cash flow my business. Now I can plan the development of my business based on knowns. And for a person planning and developing a business, that is like the the, the, the holy grail. If I can say I have forecasted revenues that are spot on of X on an annual turnover for this business, I can know exactly what I can afford to do with it. And everything that I get successfully expanded is gravy. And that's why I love the CSA model. And I think the market gardening CSA, for most people, might be the most important first step, and I think eggs still go with that. The chickens do so much. So having, especially if you can come up with a system where the chickens are running between the beds and can't get in there and mess them up. So if you can combine a paddock shift chicken raised bed model... Or even if you're just moving them through quadrants around the raised beds and doing composting in place, and when the chickens leave and the compost is there, like Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroid composting plan, then you're doing less work to get the compost made and you're doing less work to get the compost onto the bed because it's only moving a few feet. Everything should be designed to move as as little as possible to require as little work as possible in something like this. We, we think of farming like hard work, up at sunrise, down, you know, stop at sunset and work into the night sometimes. and all. Well, farming shouldn't be that way. Nature's supposed to do most of the work. We're doing it wrong. We're absolutely doing it wrong. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, you know, and I'm not saying that a lot of work goes into it because it amazes you how much work there is at times. But I'm saying over time the work should get easier and less, not harder and more. If it doesn't get easier and less, you can't add new business units. Um, another opportunity, and this is something we're kind of setting up small nurseries. I'm, very, I'm talking to Nick Ferguson today about the nursery course. They'll be coming out probably a winter of uh, this year after the PDC is completed for Ethos, And we're going to do a great job in providing education for people to do this. But in the end, I mean, if you know a little bit about plant propagation, if you're already selling eggs and other things, well, you can propagate a couple hundred plants a year and have them as part of, you know, we have these available. And start asking people, what do what do you plant on your property? And if it's something that's easy to propagate, and you have a lot of people that answer the question the same way, and it's an annual especially, well, start propagating that shit. Because you know you can sell it. So the small nurseries, I won't go deep into because we've talked a lot about it before. Uh, small orchards for produce. Again, I don't like the term orchard. What I'm really talking about is lots of productive trees. Uh, I, I can't see the long-term plan being growing carrots when the long-term plan could be growing apples and plums and pears and berries and peaches. Where all I have to do is pick them and a little bit of pruning. And the food forest model or the civvo pasture model or the alley cropping model, all of those things to me are better than the orchard. Orchardists go broke all the time. All the time. Now you can do more of a permaculture orchard model with a much more polycultured system and a lot more well thought out planning. But to me, if you can combine your livestock and your production together into a holistic system, there's less work and more production. And it may not be that you have as much production per tree, but you have more total yield per acre with this polyculture natural system. So the the, the orcharding model, when I say that here, I mean anything that grows on a, a woody perennial that comes back every year that you don't have to replant and replow every year. And that product is seasonal and it sells seasonally. We have the plums in the summer and the strawberries in the spring and we have apples in the fall. And it, it also starts creating a lot of opportunity for value-added products. You know, anything from, from, you know, applesauce, canned apples, I don't know, apple cider. You can't do the fermented kind because the government gets in your business or whatever. But you, there's no reason I can't sell you an, a hard cider kit Okay, which is, here's my fresh cider, here's a sheet of instructions, here's some yeast, here's a bucket, here's everything you're supposed to do. Right? I can do that. I just can't sell it to you already done. So how creative can you be? Here's a sizer kit. What's a sizer kit? Five gallons of cider. Right? Here's, a, here's a big jar of honey, and here's some instructions and a bucket and some yeast. Right. So I can, I can do that too, and I can probably get a big premium for that. And that guy's probably going to come back for more next year. He really is. I can develop a lifelong customer base with that. Um, specialty craft products, too. Like I talked about the piece of wood. Uh, I know one of the ladies that's been on the show here, Melanie Sorrentino. She was on here about tiny houses. Her husband is a really great woodworker. He does everything from you know custom-made, very expensive guitars to picks for guitars and wooden spoons and wooden bowls and things like that. And he makes a decent income off of that. And you know those kind of things can be added. Um, Dairy. This is very dependent on where you live. This is very dependent on where you live. There's states that are just Nazis on on raw milk. And there's states that don't even, like, there's nothing really you have to do. You can just sell it. And there's states where there's things you can do so that you can sell it and comply with the law. And there's always ways around things. Um... We have a couple dairy cows at the Perma Ethos Farm in West Virginia now. West Virginia is a Nazi state on, on raw milk. Well, our thought is, you know, one of the best soil amendments is milk. Did you know that milk is a great soil amendment? It is a fantastic soil amendment. Because one of the ways that people – let me back up a second. One of the ways that people get around things like you can't sell chicken, you know, prepared chicken. So, like, you've killed it, you've plucked it, you it's you know, dead, cold, ready-to-cook chicken – is they market not for human consumption, pet food. And the person buying it knows full well, well, I know it says pet food, I know I'm buying it as pet food, but I know it's an organic, beyond organic chicken, and I'm going to eat it, so I'm paying the price for human consumption, and I know we're getting around the law, and there's not a lot the law can do about it. As long as I'm not going wink, wink, nod, nod every time I sell you one, what is that, I sell them those, it's premium pet food. Well, people have done that in states with raw milk. They sell the milk as pet food. Virginia's like, no, nah, we're Nazis, man. No pet, it's not for human or pet consumption. Fine, soil amendment, not for consumption by humans or pets. Using this product in a manner not consistent with it's labeling is a violation of state law. That's how you label it, right? Okay, fine, there you go. So if you drink the milk, it's it's you broke the law, not me. Now I think you're in a gray area there, and I don't know if we're gonna do that or not. But it sure seems pretty ironclad. But I the reason I tell you that is the small homestead. I don't know that I want to try to paint that big a target on myself. So if you're gonna go dairy, try to pick a place where you can do it, you know, and 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 do it well. But dairy cheeses, things like that, I think make a lot of sense. And then the thing is, again. Not everything in the business has to be for the purpose of money. It can be the offset of money. So if I have a couple dairy goats, and I won't because I don't want to do this, but if I do, and I can milk my dairy goats, and I can make my cheese and my milk, and that's all product I'm not buying, well, then it makes sense. You know, and you can – it is good hog feed. I mean, you know – um, milk clabber is great for hawks and it's it's a good growth food for hawks so that's another way that it could be used even if you're not doing it other stock like sheep and cattle and goats etc again i think that for the small acreage you can only do so much with it i mean you can put a lot of a lot more animals on land than a lot of people think you can but you can overtax land even with good practices if you overstock But you can put, you know, um, a Dorper ram and two Dorper sheep into a couple-acre paddock shift system. And if you move them with the right frequency, they will not overgraze it. And those Dorper ewes will give you, on average, about three lambs per three years. So sometimes they'll double kid, sometimes they won't, sometimes they even have triplets. So, you know, you're looking at two to three lambs a year in meat yield out of that. And you're getting the grazing and the fertility gain and much easier to deal with animals, to me anyway, than goats. That's one way you can do it. The other way is there's goats that sell for a lot of money because people want the goat alive. They want to breed it and stuff like that. I don't... I don't like markets like that to me. They ebb and flow too much. They crash. They burst. But people that are good at it make money doing it with goats, miniature horses, certain breeds of dogs. So all of those types of things could be in there. I think bees and bee products is great. And I think that doing it the right way lets you develop a real market and scale your hives to your market. And I think that makes a a tremendous amount of sense. And then if you're getting a wax shield... Um, you know, pro- we'll, we'll, we have three landstrom hives uh, here now, and if I find that I like working with bees, and I don't know if I will or not yet, I mean this is a new thing for me, but if I find I like working with bees and I don't mind having one wari hive or one conventional top bar hive, I may as I add a few more hives, add at least one like that just for a wax yield because um, you get a lot less wax out of a landstrom hive, so um, you know, we'll see how that goes, but for the person that wants to do that you know, the wax from bees can be used in a lot of salves and things like that. And when you get into the herbal world, if you start making things that people put into their body, you get into a lot of weird government regulations. It's a little less restrictive if it's, if it's a salve type thing, a rub, a liniment, etc. So that is all opened up to you using beeswax as part of the formulation of that. Uh, usually olive oil and beeswax are used to make salves together. So you've got to buy the olive oil. We're growing some olives here. I don't think we'll ever grow enough to make a significant amount of olive oil, though. But uh, who knows? It's just, I guess it's possible. But that would be an input you'd have to buy. Um, but So I think that a lot of these things all kind of combine over time, and what works for you, but I think you really have to look toward value-added products, and can you start involving other people in the value-add, so if you got to a point where you had this huge surplus of apples, can you make a deal with some other local person who's really good at doing something with them, and bring them in as a partner, It's like a remote small element partnership. And I think on even five acres, there's room for maybe a two-family approach and building multiple units with those two or three families. I think that's definitely possible. It's up to you. Do you want to do that or not? I think also another way to look at this is a person with five acres that does a really good job with it and turns it into this really beautiful farm could probably put in two or three small houses. I wouldn't call them tiny. right? I'm thinking like... 12 by 16 with a loft for a bedroom. I bet they could, you could rent those out for three, four hundred dollars a month to single people or or couples, childless couples, or even some people would do it with a kid. I I think it's too small a space, but um, you know, three of those you're turning a thousand bucks a month or more just in rental income. And I mean, when I was single, I was paying t- two and a half times that for an apartment that I hated. I would have I would have lived in a place like that in a heartbeat. So you got to start thinking more like a property developer, and you develop the property to certain ends. And you might be like, I don't want chickens, I don't want ducks, I don't want goats, I don't want any of these freaking animals. I don't want any of this problem. I just want to do market gardening. Well, to do that, you'll still find peripheral stuff. You might be, I don't want to do any of this homesteading stuff. There's still ways to develop properties like this in the right area. You know, planted the trees and made beautiful. With lakes and ponds and three or four tiny houses, you've got a significant income just from that. Now, there's places you can't do that. So, again, you've got to look at the regulations and the restrictions where you're going. But the value-add component is huge. And the more you can stack value-adds, and can you find somebody that wants to do a value-added product and just provide them the raw material? So if you could find – so, like, again, you get into herbals, you get into this, like, weird government world, okay? But there's people that do it, and they're already complying with everything, and they already know what to do, and they specialize in it, and that's not you. But if, you, if that person happens to be within 20 miles of you, and you can find that person, then say, you know what, if you were working with me, I can provide you all the herbs you need for these 10 products, and you could sell those products now as being locally sourced to your existing market. There's, there's that c- cross-collaboration. So you're developing a, a, a different type of marketing channel. Instead of selling the salve to the person that wants it for their chapped hands, you're selling the raw material for the salve to the person that has 100 people that buy from them for the salve for chapped hands. Um, I want to give you some final thoughts. Number one, it takes time and how much is based on how much time you have. We're coasting into this gently. We're, you know, and, and we'll, we'll do things from a standpoint of if this works, then we'll keep doing it. If it doesn't work, we won't. If Dorothy finds one of these things that we talk about doing is just something she doesn't want to do, we just won't do it. You know, if you're trying to make a living off of this and you're trying to get there relatively quickly, you've got dad working in the city, he's driving 70 miles each direction. And he's, he, be, be, you guys have decided I'm going to buy this place, and we're going to do that for two years to transition this into a full-time income. You know, then you've got to hit it hard with like a market garden and things like that. So, how much time you have is based on your individual situation, and that's why I don't want to make anything sound easier than it is. Um, the next thing, you can't do everything, so do not even try to do everything. Like, there's a thousand more ideas that you could do than what I gave you today. That's why I said. People are like, what about rabbits? What about quail? What about this? What about that? I don't know. Right? This is what we're doing for now because this is what we have the time and resources and budget to do. And what happens a lot of times is people try to do five things because these five things will make a really great business. Great. Then if there are certain things about the other four that require time and little attention – like planting trees, for instance, then you do that part and you kind of back away from the concept for a while. You just provide the support so it doesn't die. And you pick one you can go to market with quick, and you do it, and you keep doing it, and you do it really, really well until you have a customer base. Because then adding the other ones gets so much easier. Because there's someone now to talk to about selling it. And when you when you get every single person that you already sell to turning up their nose, oh no, I do not want to eat a duck. They're too cute. I want to eat ugly chickens. Then you change what you thought was a good idea into what you know is a good idea. Again, in the scenario I gave you, I started out loving a and like and B and I ended up hating A and running away and eloping with B in Las Vegas cuz that that business unit was so much better because it cost me less took me the same amount of time and my customers wanted to buy it immediately the business person in me went from like to love now if i hate it i don't care i'm not going to do it i got to find something i at least like but then i got to make all the other quivers all the other arrows in the quiver hit home that's that's the key to success here um but don't try to do it all at once um the next thing is this is not for everyone and that's great because the big objection is like well if everybody does that then we won't be able you know, you know what you worry about that when you you worry about market saturation when it's a problem when there's nobody that's hungry for for food they can't buy then then you worry about that until then you know it's great that this isn't for everyone and not everyone should do this because this will this will destroy some people's lives if they try to and it's not right for them and you need to get a feel for what's really right for you and two people may be right for homesteading and homesteading for a profit but they might be right in totally different ways one person might you know, I asked Michael Jordan the the beekeeper the bee, bee whisperer how many hives does a person really need To make a living just from bees. He said if they have a good forage resource. 50. So there's some people that might buy a 5 acre property. And cover it with flowering plants. Just of everything that will survive that flowers. Put in 50 beehives. Be a beekeeper. That's it. You put a pond in. Throw some fish in it. Never sell them. Just catch a fish once in a while. Be a beekeeper. And can make a, a living doing it and start selling nukes and, and, and you know dividing hives and selling off everything beyond the 50 that they want to support for the direct income. All right? There might be people that put in five, do civil pasture, do food forests, do eggs, stack a bunch of things in. And if you take the guy that really just wants to be a beekeeper and you try to make him go into this multidisciplinary model, he might want to blow his brains out in 24 months. And if you take the guy that needs this kind of project-based move around, not the same thing every day, and say, here's a beekeeping offer, and all the 50 hives are there, all the equipment's here, the customer base is there. All you got to do is just, I'm like buying a business in a box. Walk in and start running it. He might want to blow his brains out in 24 months. So when I say it's not for everyone, it's it's not for everyone as in some people you shouldn't do it at all. And then it's not for everyone to do it the way everyone else is doing. You also have to find the part of it that actually gives you joy. Remember, we've gone from somebody else designing our lives to designing our own lives. So don't design something you're going to hate. And if you make a mistake, end it. Right. If you bring a certain animal onto your farm... I think we're going to raise these and they're going to work out really well. And they end up being a problem. You don't have a market for them. You don't like their attitude. You don't like whatever it is. Eat them. Freaking eat them and move on and try something else. Don't live with your mistakes. Correct your mistakes. Okay? Um, It is not easy, but it is simple. This is something I've always told people in my years as a consultant in business. It's not easy, but it's simple. And people are like, well, what does that mean? Easy means it's easy, right? Falling on your ass is easy. You just stop standing up and you'll fall on your ass, right? Um, eating Cheetos out of a bag until you're fat is easy. The consequences aren't easy, but doing it's easy. Vegetating your ass in front of the TV set in a recliner or watching TV and letting the world go by is easy, but they're not simple. They have so many negative connotations to them that eventually they cost a lot of your life. Simple means it's it's something you can do. It's something you actually can do. It doesn't, you know, so an example of that, if you're a a, a regular, you know, Joe or Jane, Basic physical health is not really a problem. You don't have a cardiac injury or anything like that. And there's a stack of cinder blocks. And there's a place 100 yards away. And I say, start carrying cinder blocks. And it's even uphill a little bit and it's kind of hot out and you don't really want to. It's not easy. There's, There's physical work involved and you're also like, why am I doing this? There's mental component to it, but when it comes right down to it, the act of picking the cinder block up, walk over here, put a cinder block down, maybe carry two at a time, whatever it is, however you do it, it is simple, but it requires effort, so it's not easy. And and that's the reality of these homestead business models. It's actually simple. All the things that you need to do have been done by somebody else, and how they are done is unknown. Therefore, you if you have a basic you know, mental capacity and basic physical health, and can find the revenue to do the startup, you can do it. And getting money to do it is also a simple, not easy thing. Getting your life into a position where it, it's right for transition is not easy, but it is simple because the steps are known and the results are predictable. So, therefore, it's simple. And I think that's. That's the big thing people have to get through their head, because then they stop talking themselves out of it. It's it's hard on your own though. I alluded to this earlier, but I think that I think America is ripe for this movement to be done with a multifamily approach. I think that two couples on five acres is more powerful than two couples each with five acres. If that makes sense. I think having the community, the ability to share a workload, the ability for one person who gets stuck mentally on something to be able to just pull back and let someone else give their opinion. Um, and I think a combined front, and especially as long as you can, I think co housing's hard. I mean, Paul Wheaton's doing it, they got a ton of people crammed into one small house on his property. And, you know, the way he puts it is learning to manage community where nobody ends up in a knife fight. I think even with a much smaller group of people, that people, especially as you, as you form a nuclear family unit, I think people are happier if they have a fortress of solitude. This is my place, and I can go here. And my wife is here, and my children are here, but nobody else is here unless I've invited them in. And when I'm at a point where I would like it to be where they are not here, I can say, it's been fun, have a nice night. Go away, and they'll go away. And I think if you can set up housing on five acres for two families, or even three, but everybody has their own space, right? Not their own room, their own domicile. And whether that's tiny houses, mobile housing, small houses, full-on, full-built houses, I don't know. But I think that approach works. I think that this all ties in eventually, for those that are wondering right now, To both AgriTrue and PermaEthos. I think that we'll be creating many opportunities for people doing this through both of those groups. Um, I think with PermaEthos, you know, the, uh, the model is, is, you know, 40, 80, 100 acre farms, but, and I think 100's better, but I think we can, we can do some things that will allow us to work with smaller pieces of land eventually. I just think we have to skin some pretty big cats before we, we, expand our resources that way. Right now we're resource thin um, in a lot of ways because we have a long way to go to develop systems and prove things out. But as we do that, going in third year, fourth year, a lot of people I think will be able to work with as more of a remote partnership on smaller pieces of land and develop communities together because we'll develop systemic uh, concepts And we'll develop repeatable things, and we'll develop a book where you can say, this is how we build a farm. I don't want anybody to wait for that, though. I want people building their own little farms right now. Uh, I know there's people out there that have 20, 30 acres. Um, There's no reason you guys can't reach out in the community and find two or three families that want to work together, build common infrastructure, and then homestead 5-ish to 10-ish acres of that and and let the rest be row crops or grazed by a leaser or whatever until you figure out how to maximize what you're dealing with. And there's so many opportunities but I, I really think that the mindset of the modern homesteader needs to get away from I, I'm going to go out in the middle of nowhere and you've got to get close enough to population centers to develop a customer base. The 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 power in marketing as you scale down becomes more and more important that you're selling the product to the person that's eating it or consuming it or using it or holding on to it or loving it or whatever it is. That that direct marketing channel as the, as the as the as the as the property decreases in size, the need for direct sales goes up. Because there's less total volume. So we have to get a better premium per unit and I, I mean i I think that somebody that really was slick I might be going out of limb here but I think somebody that was really slick could take a five to ten acre property and support half a dozen families with it i I really believe that it would have to be everybody being a jack of all trades and a master of one that's what it would have to be and you'd you'd have to have most of your families there you'd have to have like Mom and dad, both being a master of one, and probably not the same one, to really maximize it. But I bet you could. And and we have people that are going broke with a couple hundred acres to a couple thousand acres that are leasing it to somebody else because they can't even make a living with it, and they just want to lease it for enough money to cover the taxes on it so that one day maybe it'll be worth something that they can sell. And we have farms being abandoned in this country, all, all over the place. Hundreds of farms, thousands of farms have been abandoned. They're they're not suitable for large-scale, monocropped agriculture. And since the 1970s, the attitude of the United States Department of Agriculture has been what? Go big or go home. And now there's all these places that can be changed. I mean, my property sits on what used to be cattle land. The whole thing, I mean, there's probably 5,000 acres here that used to be one block of cattle rangeland. And of that, about 80 of it is being used for that today. And no one's ever really done anything with this land other than graze cattle on it, and graze cattle into the point where it didn't produce anymore, and then sell it off into sections and residential and things like that. And the opportunity is here. We're going to do it and prove it can be done. And I invite you to consider doing something for yourself like this. Again, I know that it's not for everybody. I'm not saying that it's for everybody. I'm actually telling you specifically it's not for everybody, and it may not be right for you. And our model may not be right for you, even if the whole concept is. But what I am saying is, one way or another, you have to accept the fact that what I told you is true, whether you want to or not. The life of the average American has been designed by the people in power. And if you don't take control and design your life, not just set goals, right, actually design your life, then you will be the product of someone else's design. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want anybody out there that doesn't want to do that to do that. I want all the people that think it's a good idea to keep doing it because generally when they get involved with other things, it's a freaking disaster. Right, because they they try to change it back. Right, for every suburbanite that moves out to the country, one out of two of the sons of guns want to destroy the country when they get there. So it's hard to find the places where you have the freedom to do this, but they do exist. And if that's what you look for, then sooner or later that's what you'll find, and then you design your life around that type of a, of a lifestyle. But I think you got to live where people are to make this work on a small scale, because you're never gonna you're never gonna produce enough on a property this size, provide 100% of your caloric needs. But you can provide enough total caloric needs to sell some and provide all of them back to yourself. And I want to finish up with just a concept of how powerful this can really be, a way to do this. So one of the guys we had on the show talked about cultivating mushrooms. And he said this is how you can cultivate an oyster mushroom. It's so easy. Go to Starbucks and get a bunch of of, uh, coffee grinds. And put them in five-gallon buckets and take an oyster mushroom and break it up and mix it in with those uh, those coffee grinds. And, and and that's it. You don't even really need, like, dedicated spawn to do this. Keep it moist and dark, and it will fruit, and you'll get mushrooms off of it. You get a several fruitings of it, and then eventually the coffee grounds are spent, and you have a good compost, and you've gotten a lot of mushrooms. Okay. Let's think about this. What are my costs of this? Well, once I'm producing mushrooms, I don't have a lot of cost in mushrooms, and five-gallon buckets are cheap to free. And coffee grinds from Starbucks—you know—you can usually get them. They almost always say yes when you ask for them, and you can drive down there and get them. But so your your cost ends up being time and gas to go get the 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 coffee grinds. <sighs> what if? all the coffee grinds would come to you, place themselves into a bucket, and wait for you to be ready to inoculate them. Well, if you have 100 regular customers, I'll bet you 80 of them are coffee drinkers. And what if you gave each one of them a little container and said, hey, you do want, you want to help save the earth or whatever? Whatever does it for them. Yeah, well, okay, all you do is every day when you empty your coffee out, put it in here. And if you use filters, instead of a reusable filter like I do, you don't even need to get the filter out. You just dump it in here. And whenever you come here to buy eggs or whatever, dump your coffee in this bucket. Okay? And then we have a little thing over there where you can rinse it out if you want to rinse it out. And then take your container home and bring it back. And I'll give you $0.20 in store credit every time you do that. Every time you bring me a full container, I'll give you twenty cents of store credit. <laughs> you, see now now you've you've really cut the time down. Because instead of getting this big, heavy, wet bag of coffee grinds. If you've ever gotten coffee grinds from Starbucks, it's not like it's it's like a giant garbage bag and there's bags and crap in there. They've even put it in the bucket for you. Now you gotta do is inoculate it, grow your mushrooms. You've got a mushroom product to sell fresh, and a mushroom that dehydrates well that you can sell as dehydrated. But you've got mushrooms you can eat. You can grow um, kingstrophoria that way, too, and there's probably other mushrooms that can be grown. So you have this whole little gourmet mushroom business where the only thing you do is when the bucket gets full, you crumble up a mushroom and stick it in there. Cool, huh? So that's like we just added a business unit, and they do the work for you, and they like it. People will think it's cool. They'll actually be more excited about buying the mushrooms because of this. And then you take the the compost the mushroom compost, and you can use it, but you can also sell it back to the people who gave it to you. So now they've brought you the, the coffee grinds. They've put it in the bucket for you. You've inoculated it with mushrooms. You sell them the mushrooms back, and you sell other people the media back, the, the compost back, anything beyond what you would want to use for yourself. Well, that's pretty cool. Now, how can you just keep this concept going? Well, notice when I said that we're going to do things like you know, a, a pint of uh, comfrey fertilizer, right? So we take the, the, the bottle, put a deposit on the bottle. When they're done using the stinky fertilizer, they bring the bottle back. They get store credit. You don't give them cash. That keeps them spending, yeah? The bottle comes back. That bottle can probably come back 10 times, 12 times before you, you, you don't use it again. You don't have to, like, clean it really good or anything. It's for comfrey tea for plants. It's not going to be a health risk. You don't have to sanitize it. You just fill it, you know, rinse it out maybe and fill it back up. Right, you have a little place, but your bottles here. If you're selling plants, they come in a little plant container, right? When you sell a plant in a container, if you return the container, you get store credit for it. Now you're actually not losing out here because you charge extra. You build and you say there's a twenty cent deposit on all my plants. So the plants are four bucks; they're four twenty a piece, but you get twenty cents of store credit if you bring the pots back. Now you're now you're reusing, okay? You're reusing and recycling. But the other thing you're doing is you're cutting your cost significantly because the cost of that container is greater than the deposit. So if they don't bring it back, you've made a profit. If they do bring it back, you've reused and you've not had an expense. To get the deposit, they have to come back, and to use the deposit, they have to spend it on more stuff. And, I mean, this can just keep going. If you build a significant customer base that's in organic gardening, you can put in worm beds and be selling worm juice, free tea, compost tea, and you can start taking orders in advance. You can put little signs up on your thing, sign up for next week. What are you going to want next week? And that way you don't have an excessive inventory. You're not wasting time doing things that aren't going to pay off. You can actually get your customers to write out your work schedule for you and your production schedule for you based on their demand. And there's, I mean, this can be taken once. See, this is what people don't understand. When you buy a company, which I'm gonna go, I'm gonna just pull out here for a second to like corporate acquisition. If I go in and I buy your company as a corporate predator, you think I'm buying your stuff and your warehouses and your, I'm buying your freaking customers, baby. Because once I have your customers, I can start stacking shit in there. Anything I know those people will buy, and I can ask them what they're gonna buy before I sell it to them. So I can determine that it's worth doing. I'm buying customers now you built your own customer base so check this out this is this is function stacking so I have a I had a guy I was friends with that ran a liquor store in Hot Springs, Arkansas. This is not what you would do, but I wanted to make you think of what you could do if you built this for yourself so I walk in there one day and he goes, "Hey, you want some shrimp uh I didn't know you sold those here. He goes, well, I don't, but my brother runs a shrimp operation down in Louisiana. And uh, every year, twice a year, he brings up a big shipment of shrimp, and we sell it for dirt cheap. He's coming here anyway to visit. He has two visits a year he takes up here, and he brings in at the end of two big, I guess there's two big fishing cycles or whatever, so he brings like toward the end, he brings all this fresh shrimp up. He says it's out of the water a day when it gets here. And uh, he just needs to know how much so he doesn't oversell to the thing. And, well, what happens if he has a bad year or something? Oh, you don't have to worry about it because you don't pay until the day it's delivered. You just order it. So there's a book. And it was, I don't remember what it was, but it was cheap. And these were big, fresh shrimp, right? And uh, it was X dollars a pound. How many pounds you want? I'm like, that price? 20 pounds. I wrote 20 pounds in a book. So one day the phone rings. The shrimp are going to be here tomorrow. So I swing by on the way back from my office, 20 pounds of shrimp. I'm sure him and his brother are splitting money out of that. Now, <laughs> see, if you can find seasonal things like that that you can partner with somebody else with and you have a customer base and people you talk to you have deep relationships with, that you have front-end marketed with, that you have that kind of vibe going with, you say, I know this guy that X, Y, and Z, would you be interested? Yeah, and, and there's all, and you just, these just, just bolt on components, now I'm telling you, 100 customers is not that hard to get if you live where people are. And you can make a pretty good income off of this. I'm not talking about being Daddy Warbucks here. What I'm talking about, though, is having a life with freedom in it. And there's a lot of ways to do it. You can do it with the Internet. You can do it with manufacturing. You can do it with consulting. You can do it by, I'm, you know, right now, trying to prod my son to to start up and build his own business with me backing him in it. I won't say exactly what it is yet because he may not do it. Um, but if he will, I, I, like I'm looking at this business, I do a market analysis, and I'm like, it's a home run. As long as you have the work ethic and the right mindset and do it, it's a home run. It's a business. It has nothing to do with homesteading. Nothing to do with permaculture. Nothing to do with preparedness. Nothing at all to do with any of those things. It does have to do with building relationships with customers and finding a niche and filling a niche that's, that's, that's underserved. So it, it, it can be anything. So don't let the fact that I came at it from a homestead standpoint today pigeonhole you. I want you to think, what could you do? And again, remember this. Please, my friends, remember this. If you don't design your life, someone has already done so for you and preordained the path that you will take. So no matter how you do it, please take control of your life today. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess we. better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Cheers.